Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Leading with James Ashton. In this podcast, I talk to leaders from a wide range of organisations about their attitude to leadership, success, failure, big decisions, and how they made it to the top. This is the fourth and final in a short run of one-on-one conversations talking about how COVID-19 has changed the game and how to lead through and out of this crisis. This time, I talk to Richard Parry. He's Chief Executive of the Canal and River Trust, the charity that looks after 2,000 miles of waterways across England and Wales. The Trust welcomes 4 million regular visitors and 35,000 licensed boats to its estate, which benefits from 3,000 volunteers, tidying towpaths and operating locks. I began asking Richard what had changed for him and the organisation in lockdown. What's changed? The first thing to change, I suppose, to state the obvious is that boats aren't moving. So we've effectively got a system where the waterway network itself is on hold now there are some small caveats to that because it's quite physically hard to to close a waterway network at least stretches of it and clearly people who are living on boats do need to make short trips to refill with water or to pump out their toilets and things of that sort but we've essentially got the network very restricted in terms of any extensive boat movement. Was it hard to shut down? The waterways generally rely on a degree of sort of voluntary effort, shall we say, in the sense that it's all very permissive. So if someone was absolutely determined to ignore all instructions, they probably could. So you rely to an extent on people through, I guess, a combination of uh, good citizenship and peer pressure, just doing the right thing that means that people, you know, will generally follow the instructions given. If someone was determined not to, yes, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be terribly easy for us to, to prevent it. We can um, physically lock some of the lock gates and things of that sort. And there are some other structures that you shouldn't and arguably can't really go through without them being supervised, like some of the tunnels. The key thing, I suppose, just to add to that is, of course, the, the thing that hasn't changed, but of course becomes much harder, is keeping the system safe because of the nature of its age and you know the uh, substandard in the sense of when they built embankments in the late 1700s, they didn't necessarily do it the way that you would do it now, et cetera, et cetera, means we have got to be quite active in continuing our inspection and oversight of the 2,000-mile network. So we've continued to have people out and about doing the very core things. And of course, water doesn't just stay in canals um, of its own volition. So we have also had our, our teams um, you know, making sure that flows from reservoirs and abstractions of water from the variety of sources that water comes from, that's all got to be kind of kept a close eye on so that we don't end up with canals empty with all the impacts that would cause. And come on to the towpaths because, the, you know, towpaths have been in the headlines. People gravitate to the water, to the towpaths for a jog or whatever, and it's very difficult to maintain the distance, I think. So to what degree are you involved in... Um, in keeping people apart or keeping people out, if you like? Yeah, well, it's been a really key question for us. And you're right, going back certainly to when the lockdown started, the focus has much more really been on the towpaths than the navigation. Because actually, something like 92% of people who are visiting the waterways will be on the towpath. So, of course, whilst the use of the water for, for boating, both powered boating and increasingly for things like canoeing and uh, even paddleboarding, etc., is often the, 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 the primary purpose. 
actually the volume of use is on the towpath. And that's great because towpaths provide this amazing sort of route through so many former industrial urban areas linking to the countryside, et cetera, et cetera. But it has been a challenge, as you say, A, where um, we have moored boats and there's been a lot of sensitivity about people who have been trying to self-isolate on boats. Um, at the same time, there's been a towpath that perhaps has become quite popular. And in a sense, that tension is there anyway, but the, the lockdown clearly you know, magnifies and exacerbates that. And then, as you say, we've we've seen people gravitate to them because they recognise that for, for people who want to get somewhere in the open air, away from the road network, you can't travel to Snowdonia anymore or the Lake District or whatever. What you can do is visit your local canal. And that's sort of a little bit of a double-edged sort of issue for us because in some places where the, the towpaths aren't terribly well used normally we've actually seen quite a lot of almost rediscovery of the towpaths and so in some respects that's been a very positive thing to see in places like Burnley, Sandwell and and Dudley in the West Midlands um, to see local people almost sort of fulfill the the ambition that we've had by really getting those communities to embrace the canal but there are certainly some places as I say particularly where there's moored boats or particularly where you know, the, the dimensions of the, of the towpath are quite uh, particularly challenging, where we've had to essentially give people very clear guidance. I mean, we, we couldn't physically police it. Um, again, it's an open network. Often it's very integrated with the cityscapes, the townscapes, the, the landscapes it's part of. So even if you tried to close it, you know, you rely on an awful lot of people's goodwill. And actually, when you've got moored boats and when I've got to do those regular inspections I talked about, it becomes highly impractical to physically close it anyway. So we've relied really on strong messages you limit your use stay local respect people on moored boats avoid you know keep a distance from moored boats where you can and just apply social distancing and you know lots of mixed feedback about that i think there's certainly been lots of examples where people have been very respectful of one another because all the towpaths are relatively narrow yeah i think as long as people are using the full width of it you can pass you know and, and observe social distancing but of course, if, if someone is, is cycling too fast through a, an area where you've got people crowded, then that's clearly going to be, be, a, be a problem. So it's all been about trying to encourage the good behaviours that we all need. And in a sense, towpaths are no different from, from many other parts of society sure. where we need to demonstrate the same, whether we're queuing for the supermarket or you know, other things. Everyone needs to respect each other's space. And, and I think by and large, we'll be confident that had happened. But there's certainly been lots of feedback where people are anxious that it hasn't always been the case. And we can only really continue the message to encourage people to to show that consideration for others. And what have you done with the organisation? Because you've talked about 2,000 miles of waterways that you maintain. There's the maintenance work, there's overseeing the boats, there's all the tourism stuff. I mean, do you as the leader just have to take a call and say, well, we're just going to have to power down now and and do a lot less and I don't know what you're doing with, you've got about 1,700 members of staff and 3,000 volunteers. And do you sort of, do some of those just regretfully have to be furloughed or sent away? Yes, you're absolutely right. It, it is a bit of a mixed story. You know, we're not like, you know, um, I, I, I don't know, sort of a restaurant chain where everything closes. And of course, you know, you're just dealing with a very binary situation because we have to continue with a number of our functions albeit in slightly changed circumstances, but clearly there are other things that we can't do. Volunteers, which as you've rightly identified, we increasingly, um, I wouldn't say depend upon, but but they're a key part of, of how we operate now. They provide an awful lot of the, the added dimension to, to, to the waterways. We really had to stop that almost straight away. 
partly because actually the demographic of a lot of our volunteers, you know, they're often you know, in the retired um, age category. So there would clearly be people who, who would be in the more at risk groups. So these, so these people are, they're the volunteer lock keepers. They're probably people who are tending the grass verges on the towpath and, and that sort of thing. They're doing it for the love of the waterways. Absolutely right. Yeah. And it's quite a diverse range of things. You're absolutely right. Lock keeping is at the centre of it. We have something like 12, 1300 volunteer lock keepers now often just doing a day or, or maybe two days. So so it's kind of quite well spread, but actually a really big population of lock keepers that's grown every year. We do have those sort of local cleanup groups. Um, some do sort of light maintenance. We very much allow the groups to almost sort of grow their ambition as, as and when you know they want to. So some of them will take on slightly more challenging is perhaps the wrong word, but they'll want to do a bit more. So some of them, for example, are increasingly managing some of the trees uh, on the offside of the canal, for example, which is a constant challenge for us to keep that under control. So there's a whole range of things that they would do. And some of them do do some of the more as a more discrete tasks. So, so some of them are getting more involved in things like water control, often working as a, a supplement to the employees you know, within the operational team. And then some of them, of course, play roles within our our professional office staff and one key strand which is another thing we've of course had to stop is around education and an engagement with young people very active group of volunteers that do a lot with schools with um, you know, youth organizations partly around water safety and partly around again just bringing people to the canal and explaining how things work and, and familiarize them with the environment etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's quite a lot of you know, that sort of volunteering as well and pretty much from the, the start of lockdown we've, we've stopped all of that being very is a very much precautionary measure to do that so so volunteering more or less stopped in terms of the employees where we are now and we've sort of evolved to this point in a series of steps it didn't all happen literally in one go we've now furloughed around 40 percent of our colleagues and and that sort of started in some of the very obvious places where we we did literally have to kind of close the doors so our museums some of our attractions places like anderton boatlift for example we had to kind of close those as soon as the lockdown came in and so that meant immediately that everyone involved in those those sort of local centers you know no longer had a role we also have a very active community engagement program some specific programs in some particular places across the country and just a sort of general increased activity and that that again was something we've had to stop again pretty much all of that so it wasn't like flicking a switch there was a degree of it was it was gradual i mean it's it's difficult to call it and say this is going to be like nothing we've ever seen before guys we've got we've got to switch to code red it was, it was a dawning realization really a little bit of that i mean in, in some very clear tasks very clear immediately others it took a little bit longer to um to sort of plan it through one of the key things is that we have an in-house direct labor construction teams and and so they generally work on a cycle, which means that through the winter, they're doing what we call stoppages, where we've taken the water out and they're doing the more intrusive work. And if you think about the run up to the lockdown towards the middle to end of March, they were just coming to the end of those programs. So where we could, we closed those sites quickly. There were a few sites that we just had to do, you know, maybe two days, maybe a week, maybe in the most extreme cases, about 10 days more just to make sure the site was closed down and the work was um, either completed or at least that phase of work was completed. So those direct labour construction teams were, were another example of where we phased things out slowly. So what can you do at the centre of all this, Richard, when you're not really seeing your people face to face? I mean, how do you act so you try to keep up morale and so on? Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely the considerations at the top of mind. We've all had to learn to work in a different way. So clearly I'm keeping very regular touch with my senior team 
Um, we have what was originally a twice daily call at first to then a daily call. Now we're doing it every couple of days just to sort of regulate how often we need to keep in touch. So very much working through people, I guess, relying on those chains of communication, because, of course, the thing that we've all lost is that ability to sort of touch and feel and get a direct sense of how things are. Um, and you sort of don't realise, I think, entirely how much you rely on that. So whether you're just around the office or whether you're absolutely able to drop out and drop, a, you know, drop in and visit a canal or a project site, you can just pick up through the conversations that you can have, almost accidentally sometimes, just a sense of the place. And of course, you're starved of all of that. I mean, I made the sort of the metaphor. It's almost like sort of one of those games where you have to do everything wearing thick woolen mittens. You know, you're now trying to sort of do your buttons up or or, or cut a slice of cake or something. And, and you just you just can't have the hands-on direct contact with it that you would normally rely upon. So instead, you're having to sort of, I suppose, pick signals up some other way by interrogating is the wrong word, but by through your se- your senior people, you know, making sure that they're giving you very direct answers to things that you're satisfied that they are cascading things. Um, we're doing some occasional sort of bigger group uh, sessions on Zoom and Teams and things like that. So, I, for example, I did a session last week where I talked to all our local area operations managers who are really our, almost our key resource right now because they're the ones overseeing the sort of day-to-day stewardship of the of the waterway network. So dipping in for sort of occasional uh, conversations like that. Tell me about coming coming back from this because we're talking in early May and this will come out in, in, in later May. Are you among those, do you classify yourself with the, those tourism bodies? You said that you're not a restaurant, but are you absolutely desperate to get some semblance of of activity of business back as we go into summer or because of the nature of the organization and your funding you can sit tight for a bit longer well i think i think the short answer is yes james and i'll explain a bit more about that you we're very much an enabler aren't we so we manage this 2000 mile network and we want it to be absolutely for public benefit we see ourselves playing a role as the as the steward custodian of it but it's for people it's for the communities that we that we engage with it's for the boaters on their boats it's for the businesses and the charities who we partner with who are often very local who use the waterways and i think our focus is very much really on that end of it so for example the hire boat businesses that bring so much sort of color to the waterways that give people that opportunity to have a a, a go on a boat for a week or a long weekend or something that's all stopped a that puts those businesses in very severe jeopardy because sadly most of them aren't of a form that means they can easily qualify for some of the government support so a lot of them are really struggling so we really want to bring that back to life because actually that has multiple benefits a it supports those local businesses and the local economies which those businesses are very often key to, to, to providing it gets people back on the waterway so you know we are again introducing new people to the experience of of, of enjoying the waterways and of course it also generates the income that we depend upon. You know, we are in a fortunate position that we have a proportion of grants. Some of our commercial income comes from the more sort of long-term investment that's less sensitive to the changes that we've all had to go through during the lockdown. But we do depend on tenants paying us rent or boats paying us license fees, some fundraising, etc. And a lot of those income streams have reduced. And for us to be able to do all the really added value things, uh, it's really important we, we get those back working again so that people can have the experience, but also so that we can generate the income and support those other businesses and other partners. And to what extent have you had to, or maybe you haven't got round to ripping up your strategy yet for the coming six months to a year, as you hope to bring the trust back fully, what will need to change? 
Well, we're very much calibrating that now. And I think, you know, we are in the same same boat, if you give the pun, as many other organisations, of course, in trying to get a sense of what's the pace at which we can go. So, you know, we are uh, fortunate in the sense that we haven't closed in the way that a number of other visitor attractions or for want of a, of a better word tourist uh, destinations have closed so you know the towpaths have stayed open and um, we've continued to keep the network um, active in the sense of people are, are living on boats and there's that activity going on so the step change will be smaller for us in some respects but nevertheless you know how quickly can we get our museums and attractions back open Critically, how quickly can we get the navigation back open? How can we get those hire boat businesses and, and all the other types of business, the, the day trip boats, the, 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 the restaurant boats, the cafe boats, etc.? How quickly can we sort of help them to um, come back to full function? How can we get our volunteers back out again? And part of that's a confidence thing. Part of that is obviously the measures we need to put in place. And when can we start thinking about those community engagement activities that are so important for our long-term future, which you know is all going to be about people's confidence again to will they want to come down to the canal and participate in some sort of event that we might organise, you know, putting together sort of whether it's health walks or or canoeing activity or a clean up or some of the novel and innovative things that we've seen groups do. You know, we've got great projects, for example, building um, or creating perhaps rather gardens in some of our city centres. You know, when will people want to feel they can come back and do those sorts of things so we've got to really calibrate each one of those individual strands of work separately so that we are moving forward at pace where we can following the general government advice that we will get in the, in the weeks ahead rather than being too cautious but at the same time obviously not wanting to try and get started too quickly and finding that you know our employees or our volunteers or indeed our customers are you know are uneasy about that so we're just trying to make those calculations and of course work back from what we need to do when to ensure that we've done the planning so restarting our project work for example is going to require quite a lot of rethinking about some of our work practices just to give you one small example James we, we, we make our own lot gates so we have two large centers big warehouse sort of buildings where we're, we're making very substantial if you think about the dimensions of a lock gate the big chunky things yeah yeah great big chunky things you know sort of could be anything for sort of 10 meters long five meters wide great big pieces of wood that, that the guys there are working on and we've closed those workshops because we weren't convinced that we could find a safe way of continuing in the way that we we would previously have operated but as we look ahead to next winter, you know, we will need to replace a number of our lock gates. We therefore do need to find safe ways of reopening our workshops. And that may mean that we have to sort of change some of the practices within what, after all, are relatively closed sites. So that means that obviously we can control those in, in a better way than we can perhaps some of the, the waterway sites that, that, that we will have if we're repairing a towpath, for example. But even so, there's a challenge to work that through. And so making sure that each one of these individual activities has its own work stream to think through the risk assessment, um, the mitigation, confidence build amongst the employees or, or volunteers, etc., and then make sure that we have a, a really clear plan for that sort of activity to resume as and when we think we can, given the government advice. What about broader direction? Because I had Kate Maver from English Heritage on this podcast a little while ago, and I put you in the same bucket. You were, uh, as was British Waterways up to 2012, which was which was state-run, became Canal and River Trust, which is a, a charity supported by Grant. And it feels like the challenge that you're, I'm not sure if it's implicit or explicit, but the challenge is that you um, you need to get to a point at which you can be financially independent. And as a result, you've got all sorts of, no pun intended, income streams 
going on, whether that's a lot of property that you're developing or, you know, work with the utility companies who use your towpaths or what we've discussed already, the boat licensing and and so on. Does coronavirus make your mission, if you like, harder or do you think nothing changes once we've got past this? I, I think things will definitely change. I mean, what's hard is to predict precisely how they will change, change, isn't it? So, you know, you're right. There is certainly some um, comparison between us and English heritage, you know, in terms of the origins and the, and the process we've been through. We are um, in a slightly different position in that we have, um, as I'm sure you've looked at, a, a grant. There's essentially a fixed grant through until t- till March 2027. Yes, absolutely. So you have a longer, you certainly have a longer runway than, than than Kate has, but I don't know what happens after that. Well, that's a very good question. And in fact, one of the things <laughs> that we were, uh, we, we, we were doing as the, as the lockdown has affected things is starting the engagement with government through DEFRA with what's called a grant review yep. to start to indicate what expectations we should set beyond 2027. Feels like a long way away. But when you're managing infrastructure that's 200 plus years old and you know, needs interventions like, you know, like a lot of our substantial infrastructure does on a sort of 30, 40, 50 year cycle, you, know, you kind of need some sort of long term planning in your asset management. So understanding what resources we might have is part of that. Now, you're absolutely right. We have other income streams and clearly one of the big expectations of the model that was set up in 2012 when the trust was formed was that we would drive those income streams to generate increased amount of income from those and potentially rely less on on government grants and it's certainly been successful to an extent we've seen very strong growth in our investments prior to the coronavirus i should quickly caveat And we've generated income through other things, including our charitable fundraising. It's not the biggest proportion of our income, but it's been great to see that we can sign up donors and form partnerships with trusts and foundations and major donors, etc. Relatively small scale compared with the, the big sort of established charities. But nevertheless, that has started. And very often that's what really adds the ability to do some of the extra things. You know, we have a network that requires something of the order of 150 million pounds just to do the basic infrastructure maintenance repair work that that it depends on and manage the manage all the day-to-day operations that go with that so i need to really secure that income just to undertake that really vital core infrastructure management if we can then generate some more charitable income above that that enables us to do the community work to do the work that's about promoting well-being participation yeah addressing health then that's really where some of this relatively small but nevertheless vital extra funding can come in. So, for example, you know, we've been a a partner with the People's Postcode Lottery that generates through the players of the the lottery something like two and a half million pounds for the organisation. And that's money we can we can target on some key things that we think will really make a difference in some of the communities that that we uh, that we serve. So so the whole mix of income is vital and you're absolutely right the long term aspiration is to certainly generate as much of our own income as we can but our conversation with government is about saying you know this is critical national infrastructure in many places you know we've got reservoirs we've got you know high risk um, uh, 200 year old structures that require an awful lot of of care and attention um we provide this vital service in terms of moving water around the country you know providing drinking water dealing with sort of flood mitigation drainage etc some of that we will always feel government should recognize and make a contribution to 
but clearly that's a conversation that we're having with with Defra over the next few years. Yeah, because now that your your investment of property income does exceed what you get from Defra, Defra is is about a, a quarter of income, and I suppose you want to see it as a yeah as a as a as a falling part. Is that what you brought, Richard? So you were there was your predecessor who kind of led the conversion. Uh, of of the organization and then within a year of that you you took over as a ceo what was your style what did you bring was it that commercial edge or how how did you see it when you came in yeah well first of all i was i felt extraordinarily lucky to be given the opportunity and i still feel that in the six you know what feels like an amazingly short six and a half years coming up to seven years later i I had a background in running just a large infrastructure large public transport services and I think there was a combination of things that when I went into the process that I think the board was looking for, A, knowledge of what a large and relatively old network involves. Um, you know, I'd run, been involved, I should say, in running the London Underground as part of the team there for some years. Um, and there's some sort of read across from one to the other, I guess. Um, I joke that the, the Underground is about keeping the water out and the canals is about keeping the water in. But, you know, sort of, <laughs> if, you, if you, flip, you flip it over, it sort of has similar characteristics. Well, the, the Northern Line is not quite as old as the Manchester Canal, but not far off. No, no, it's, it's, it's right. Give, give, or, give or take sort of, you know, 50 to 50 or 60 years or something. And, and, and we'd done a lot in the Underground from when I joined in the mid-90s through until, you know, the time when I was acting managing director for 10, 10 11 months to really promote the kind of growth in customer service and to see our role in having what we thought would be a different relationship with customers. And I think there was something about that as the British Waterways transferred into the charitable sector and was looking for a different relationship with its users, with the communities around it. And I think probably some of the experience I'd had in the underground was helpful in, in, in thinking about the route the trust would take. And as you say, I think the third aspect would be the commercial side as well. You know, I'd been involved in in the commercial side of uh, of the underground, some of the, the more novel and innovative things we did there, whether it was oyster cards, uh, whether it's some of the the commercial opportunities that we that we took and also of course i had a spell in railway franchising as well which again was fairly short-lived i should say but in developing uh, the models there obviously a lot of emphasis on how to generate income from again something that that, that would be a, a, some similarities as a network moving people around etc cetera, etc cetera. so those are the skills but then what's the style what do the people under you uh, you know get from you every day obviously not when you're on a zoom call but in, in a normal day yeah i mean I mean, um, what what do I bring to the team? I mean, I, I mean, clearly, I would would see myself as being an enabler rather than you know the person in it with any sort of authoritarian style. You know, I think I'm very engaged and engaging. So for me, a big part of this is the hearts and minds part, clear communication, you know, helping people see where their role contributes to the to the whole and the, and the journey that we're on, and that vision, I guess. But I think there's something about about accountability as well. So I've I've been very clear, I think, in the organisation about how we make sure that we deliver what we say we're going to deliver and that we're true to our our, our customers, to our, our, our supporters, that we are very focused on, on on that assurance model. So when you're managing you know, large, pretty complex still infrastructure, you, know, you need to be very uh, rigorous about that aspect of it. So attention to detail in as much as making sure that we do you know, the basic things well and then once we have the basic things well we can then have the ambition to do more so very much about keeping that ambition but at the same time recognizing that you only get to have that ambition because you've done the basic thing there was a lovely quote that my ex-boss the underground picked up from the the london underground of the 1920s which was about you know the quote i won't say verbatim but it was along the lines of, if you don't do the basics then no amount of 
ornamentation will save you. You know, you can't engage communities. You can't deliver things that would that would, would be about the the longer term ambition if you're not getting the basic things right. You know, people have got to experience the the waterway network and feel that it's an attractive, safe place to come, whether they're on the boat or on the towpath, and, and ensuring that we delivered that so we could then think about bringing more people to it, thinking about the diverse communities around us and how we play a role in, in their lives in improving the quality of life for people who don't have much access to green space, et cetera, et cetera, the things that are important to us, but doing the basics first. It looks like your first leadership role was uh, 2009. You were acting managing director of London Underground. And to cast minds back, I mean, these, these are the early years of Boris Johnson as London mayor. From what I recall, there was a real, you know, get this done uh, mentality, particularly because you were three years away from the London Olympics when literally everything had to be smooth and effortless and, and selling the, the capital to the world. How was that period when you were handed the reins? Well, it was uh, an amazing experience. I mean, I was always acutely aware of the privilege that I was given. I mean, I knew from working in the underground for nearly 20, something like 17, 18 years prior to that and seeing yeah, being part of a team. You know, I was lucky enough to kind of grow my role every few years to take on a slightly bigger role, slightly more leadership responsibility, etc. So I'd very much been part of that senior underground team that had come together in around 2003 and had really seen us you know, take things forward. We'd gone through the, the terrible experience of, of the 7th of July 2005, of course, as a team, and then to be given the opportunity to sort of step up from my peers and lead the organisation through that period of transition. At, at the relatively, I should say, sort of tender age of something like 43, 44, I think at the time, it was a tremendous privilege. And I felt that that was, you know, I always saw it as a transitional role and how I would ensure that the organisation uh, was led from a position of strength because of all that we'd achieved and, and, and the progress that we'd made and ensuring that I really was making sure that into the political side of it, with things like the Olympics to think about, that we didn't step back from that progress. There was an awful lot, if you remember, going on at that time around the public-private partnership, the PPP. Great source of headlines, yes. Yes, it was the, sort of the last phase, I suppose you would call it, of that. And I, I was very much in the centre of how we ensured that actually some of the aspects of the PPP that had injected fresh thinking into the underground, but at the same time clearly wasn't working in terms of the overall delivery, how we navigated a way through that that was in the interests of of the of London, the city, of the of the users of the underground, with with that political dimension overlaid as well, with the Olympics, you know, obviously as, a, as an enormous key sure. deliverable for us all to step up to reach. So it was it was a great time to have been given that opportunity, and I was very proud of of the team and how we pulled together to see the organisation through that period of transition and see out the you know the last phase of the PPP. And then see the organisation go from strength to strength to be part of delivering an amazing Olympics in 2012. Now, quite often acting MDs like to become the MD, uh, Richard. So my antenna was sort of twitching when I saw that. What was there a sense of disappointment there for you? Was that a set an early setback as a leader, or am I am I reading too much into the CV? No, I don't. I, I don't think I could see it as a setback, James. Genuinely, I mean, I mean, I, I of course would have been enormously pleased, satisfied if I'd been given the opportunity to stay in the role for longer. But it hadn't been something I'd seen coming. And I mean, I, I, you know, as I said, I was relatively young. I'd been part of a team. Yep. The uh, previous managing director left fairly quickly. So there wasn't sort of a long sort of expectation, a long recruitment or anything. I was asked to step up and it was very much, as I saw, to fulfill all the things that we as a team had wanted to do and to make sure that I, I saw that through to the next transition. So it, was, it really wasn't something I, I, I was disappointed. In fact, I think, again, I think if you know, I stayed on as the deputy MD yes. for 
another 18 months or so after that because the MD was a former colleague who came back, Mike Brown, who's now gone on to become the commissioner. So the fact that, you know, I'd been part of the team with Mike, I think if if he hadn't left the organisation shortly before 2009, he would have been, I'm sure, the acting MD before being appointed the MD. So in a sense, I was given an opportunity that I might not otherwise have had um, and was very, very grateful for what that gave me in terms of the experience to then go on from there to to do other things that have led me to where I am in this role now. And then the role you've had now, uh, as I said, six and a half, seven years, which has gone by in the blink of an eye. Who's helped you hone your leadership and, and, and improve and learn things? I know you've got great business figures like Alan Layton as your uh, as your chairman. You could learn a lot. Just read a couple of his books. <laughs> but I'm interested in in what in how <laughs> in how someone like him helped you, or who else might have helped you along the way. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right to, to focus on on the board because I have been extremely um, well served by the various members of the board of trustees that I've worked for, starting with Tony Hales, who was the chair of British Waterways, who then became the first chair of the Canal River Trust. Right. Um, and Tony recruited me to the role, and and he a, a tremendous energetic figure. Tony really sort of passionate about the waterways, had really seen you know so much of the, the potential to make the trust. You you know, from the very first inklings of the idea about creating the trust. So, so working with Tony, you know, his experience was great. He, he built a very strong board of trustees around him. And then, as you say, Alan taking the chairmanship in 2015, fantastic figure to work with Alan, stretched across so many different activities that you can barely keep up with him. But his focus on the waterway and on my role when, you know, we were together in the room, when we were having our regular catch-ups, was really kind of great in sort of helping me create that focus. Were you worried about switching into the charity sector? It's slightly different to lead a charity versus a, um, a public sector organisation, but one that needed to be was very commercial and had a lot, a lot of revenues at uh, London Underground. I mean, I genuinely think it was the perfect fit for what I felt I was ready for at this stage of my career. I'd, I'd, I'd loved every minute of working at the Underground, Apart from you know perhaps when there were those occasions when things were going wrong or we were dealing with with, with difficult circumstances, but as as, a, as an organisation to be part of, it was fantastic. The thing that that I was looking for, having come from that, and particularly having spent a short while in in, in the railways, was where's this more the, the warmer, more charitable side of things. You know, it, it, the underground is a very functional organisation, so vital for London. You know, goodness knows the circumstances it's facing right now. But absolutely about moving people around the city, you know, focus on journey time, focus on getting the system to work efficiently, etc. Clearly, when you're in a waterway environment, there's a whole dimension that's about that public engagement, you know, encouraging people to come and relax, to come and de-stress, to build those community links, to take, you know, this kind of corridor running through some post-industrial, you know, relatively run-down parts of cities still, and find ways in which to bring them to life engage with people that was a dimension to this that I was really really excited by so it felt like as a transition to go from something that had been about the infrastructure yes of of course about more than that about the service but to bolt onto that something that was really about thinking how you make this model of involving the people along the length of the waterways bringing them into the way that we do things 
unlocking all the potential for them in terms of the health benefits, et cetera, it can offer. It really gave me a dimension to it that was exactly what I was looking for to give me that that broader that broader mission, really. Yeah, it's very much like trying to get more people on the water, like uh, Robin Mortimer, who's at Port of London Authority, who, who I've interviewed as well. And I know he was involved in the creation of Canal and River Trust. But how many, you've got about 4 million regular visitors to your waterways. What's capacity? What can What would you like? How many people would you like to be coming can you cope with when we get back to normal? It's a great question. In fact, there's a real question. We now think that four million is rather an underestimate because we rely on sort of service. It's very, very hard to count, of course, when the network is so well. I did wonder. Um, sort of expansive. Yeah, um, and, and so we rely on a sort of a, um, what's now an online uh, panel survey, and that seems to be indicating that the number of regular users is north of five million. Could even be up in the in the region of sort of seven or eight million. So it's, it's so it's a big number, and because of the of the slight uncertainty around what it is. Is quite a hard thing to say. We want to grow it by ten percent, or because actually, what's the basis is a little difficult to pin down. But it's a very big number, and I think what we tried to focus on, rather than use that metric, is a metric that's been about local, about local people's appreciation and use and involvement with the waterways. So recognizing that we have a vital role on in tourism particularly as we look to the next phase of our, of our future as a nation, I think, in the role we can play in terms of some of that local staycation tourism. But critically for us, we see the difference we can make to people's lives is in that corridor where people live 5, 10, 15 minutes away from the waterway and engaging with that group. So our real focus is on how many of those people know the canal is there, use it from time to time, are involved with it in some other way, perhaps ultimately volunteering, but at least their kind of involvement is more than just occasional, and appreciate and value it. And then that they're aware of the trust. They see our role because we, you know, we recognise that, yes, it's not, it's not just about sort of grandstanding. It's about saying for people to support us and to make possible this vision of a, a genuinely sort of locally appreciated waterway. They've got to know who the, who the Canal River Trust are and to have some connection to us. So our focus has really been rather than about growing use for use's sake, it's about saying how can we make a difference to those local people? And we've started to measure some of the outcomes. One of the, the most exciting pieces of what we've been doing, which has quite a lot of, of I think, engagement with with wider of bodies beyond the Canal River Trust into even into government, but certainly into the charity sector, has been looking at, well, how do you measure the outcomes that you're delivering? If, if local people are having slightly happier, healthier lives because they're using and gaining something from the local waterway, how do you put a value to that? And so part of our focus has been on exploring and, and developing that so we can have a story that says this is the the real value that we add to UK society. We care for this amazing heritage, 200 years old, part of our collective history, industrial revolution and all of that. It's now a green corridor bringing all this sort of beauty to people's doorsteps, all the, all the, all the benefit. How do you put something to measure that? And we've sure. really wanted to make sure there's some way to quantify and put a value to that so people can appreciate it when we're talking to government about future funding and things of that sort. Yeah. Uh, what about what's gone wrong? You, you've had six and a half years. It can't all have been, no pun intended, plain sailing. Uh, what are the things, the decisions that you've made, the directions you've taken the organisation off in that you've had to you know, do an about turn or there have been regrets? Well, the first thing I should just acknowledge, James, because you, know, you said what, what's gone wrong. I should acknowledge that we did have you know, a really difficult 
point for the organisation last summer with the partial failure of the spillway at Todbrook Reservoir in Whaley Bridge. So in terms of specific episodes, if I can use that word, that's been the hardest because suddenly we were confronted with the fact that a reservoir that we're responsible for was a threat to the lives of the people of the town and the evacuation that followed and a very anxious few days as we drew the water out, etc. So that was certainly, uh, in terms of moments for me, the, the hardest to confront, you know, what, what did we need to do uh, living through that sort of three, four, five day period? There were, and you put yourself out there. You were there on on uh, you know on Newsnight and and so on. Yeah, and that was your so because we've talked about the waterways. So there are instances where the reservoirs that you are specifically responsible for, as opposed to the the local water company. Yeah, that's right. So. Again, it, it makes sense when you think about it. When the canals were first built, um, they needed a supply of water. And so part of the construction of the canals, particularly when it went away from the natural sort of water course where they could take water from the rivers, higher up into, into places like the Peak District, was to create water supply. Yeah. So we have 72 reservoirs, typically sort of you know, high up in, 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 in areas like the Peak District, but not entirely. You know, we have a substantial reservoir, you know, fairly central in Birmingham, for example, and others that are around. I mean, there's one in Brent Reservoir in, in, in North London is one that we're responsible for. I should say that not all the reservoirs still feed the canal system. One of the slight curiosities is that in taking a lot of the old assets, we took some reservoirs that no longer directly supply the canals, but nevertheless, they were part of the history. They played a vital role and most of them are still active in, in supplying water. It seems as complicated as privatising the um, the railways versus the rail network. It's difficult where there's always the point at which the, the rail meets the track and that someone has to have responsibility, yes. I suppose. So that that was a very specific moment of crisis, that, that one. I mean, could you are you holding your hands up and saying, look, we should have invested more sooner, or was it a case of managing that crisis and and investing as much as you can across the um, you know across the coming years? Yeah, I'm a, I th- so th- there have been two recent reports on this, which you know, I refer people to because that's where you know, the circumstances of the of the uh, the failure have been examined in great detail by you know, eminent experts uh, with 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 all the right engineering knowledge, etc. It wasn't a shortage of funding, and this was the key point. Thinking back to that that Newsnight interview I did, even even within a few hours of, of the of the incident happening, it was about whether the overarching inspection regime had identified the risk of this failure, and whether we, in our overall stewardship, had been uh, attuned enough, if you like, to the potential risk. And you know, there's a very highly developed reservoir safety system with the Reservoirs Act 1975 at the centre of it, with the role of the Environment Agency's regulator, with independent inspections undertaken to a, a very prescribed cycle. And there had been a, a reliance upon that, that I think Todbert Reservoir and the, the failure there has indicated that that needed more, uh, needed more scrutiny. And so we've very much been on that very, very sort of intense experience working with those reviews to understand how this, the whole regime we're a part of, if you like, and it's not just our reservoirs, you know, all the reservoirs in England and Wales being subject to this. And clearly there were some things that we've looked at and you know, would, would, would admit that you know, actually we had our time again, we would wanted to look in a bit more detail at that particular issue. And who knows, we'll never know whether different things have been done earlier might have led to a different outcome. The key thing for us, though, was that these independent inspections had not flagged this threat with sufficient urgency. So the underlying design flaws in the spillway that went back to when it had been built in 1970 
had never properly been understood and identified. And so, you know, really understanding why those independent inspections didn't kind of create the urgency that we would then have responded to was really the, the, the key finding from that. But, but as you say, James, I mean, that was very much a crisis, absolutely. And in the moment, very specific thing you just have to manage your way through and you know we were responding as best we could to all the kind of the media the absolutely kind of concern understandable concern of local people working with the other services the police etc to ensure that we responded as, as well as we as we could etc but very much you know in a sense you're, you're just in autopilot at that point you know, your instinct takes over you're doing all the things that you think you need to do and you're managing through the crisis Back to your question, which was much more, I think, about were, were almost the more considered judgments that you make. One of my slightly glib, I will admit, sort of comments when I'm asked that sort of question is, is almost you need to go 10 years into the future and look back and see whether we did enough of the things now that would take us to where we need to get to when we're beyond this phase of the first grant agreement, what the organisation's long-term future is at that point. And in a sense, that's the thing that I most wrestle with, if you like, is trying to gauge how much change, you know, where where should we be driving harder to make things happen quicker? What are the things that we need to get on with because our long-term vision depends upon that versus recognising this is a very old infrastructure. It's a pretty old organisation in, in the sense that we have lots of people who've got experience of you know, 30, 35, 40 years working on the waterways. How do you inject that culture change, that change of approach that leads you towards where you want to be, you know, five, 10 years out, but at the same time value all that knowledge, all that history and experience without which, you know, you could get badly unstuck. Yeah. Do you, you talk a lot about the, the, the age and obviously it is a very old infrastructure. I mean, do you, do you worry that you're not spending enough? I mean, I, I note that about £24 million a year is going on the major infrastructure works, but really there's quite a lot you just need to spend on day-to-day operations to keep the thing running. I mean, what is your the work programme ahead of you? What would you like to be spending or should be spending, do you think? That's a very pertinent question. Of course, you know, here we are with all the money that government's thrown at the current crisis and, and understanding how we as a nation, you know, come through the other side of that. And in a sense, we're a tiny, tiny part of that. We've looked very hard following the experience of the Todbrook Reservoir failure at that whole stewardship of not just our reservoirs, but all the other high-risk um, assets that we manage, the embankments, the tunnels, the culverts, etc. And I think as a board, we are minded to look to increase our spend because we recognise that with climate change and other sort of factors to take into account, we need to be uh, making quicker, if you like, sort of progress with reducing some of these very long-term risks that are inherent in such old infrastructure. You know, our risk register is populated with a range of risks, but you know, right at the top is about the fact that you know, this old infrastructure needs that very, very active management and investment expenditure and we you know i think we do see that the 24 million you quote is something we need to increase and expand somehow so the challenge for us long term is both recognizing that as we talked about on income earlier we need to grow and diversify that income think about where long term our grant position will be and at the same time find the capacity to spend more in this key infrastructure because the public safety risk is one that we're now acutely conscious of. And whilst I can you know, say to anyone listening, absolutely it's safe, we inspect it very carefully, very rigorous approach to this. Um, nevertheless, for the long term, the view is that we do need to find ways of spending more to address 
these high risk assets yeah. in this the near term rather than in the long term if you see what I mean yeah. so we can make progress in in reducing that risk more quickly than probably the original plan would have been when the, the trust was first formed so more leadership challenges to come Richard Parry thanks so much for the conversation James thank you very much Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review if you like what you've heard. You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or through leadingpod.com. They include Julie Maxton talking here about breaking glass ceilings at Oxford University and the Royal Society, where she's executive director. I've never seen myself as a role model, to be honest, but I accept that some people do look at me as a role model. And I'm happy to talk about my career, but I never set out to break any glass ceiling at all. I just set out to be a good lawyer, basically, but life takes you in different directions, and this is just where I've ended up.